Okay, this is uh, March the 27th, 2012. I don't know of any announcements that we have, so we'll just get right to it. Let's prepare ourselves in our usual way, a few moments of silent prayer, rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mighty word that is alive and powerful and that it is inerrant. It is, covers everything that we need to know in order to uh, not only survive but indeed to excel in life and godliness. We live in a world that is fallen and the false doctrine is all pervasive. So we need to focus on this most important topic that we're covering, which is the gospel, we pray that you will help us to file what we learn into our long-term memory banks so that we will be able to use them and be good servants for you. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> Do I need to turn this off? or? Yeah, I guess so. Okay. <coughs> We're going to continue tonight in uh, getting the gospel right under the subtopic of easy believism. And most of what I'm going to be covering comes from journals and articles and things that people write concerning easy believism. You would be surprised how many articles and, and uh, books and uh, all type of literature that covers easy believism. And I can remember I asked some of you, um, have you ever heard of easy believism? And you said no. Well... <coughs> The reason that so many people do not understand what the, the gospel is and why they would accuse us of being involved in easy believism, which is a derogatory term that they were hurl at those who don't add works to salvation. The, the reason that they do that is fundamentally, in the most concise way I can put it, is because they don't know the difference between positional and experiential in the Christian life. This is how pro profound knowing that distinction is. And there are, I, I can't tell you how many people, and some of them, the, the Bible communicators, some of them are pretty respected. And they are right on a lot of issues, but they have this one wrong. And when you get this one wrong, <laughs> you're wrong. Because this is not a peripheral issue. We're talking about the fundamental bedrock issue of salvation, the gospel. And so as, we, as I go through these things, one reason I am giving them to you, from I'm mostly quoting, is because I want you to be exposed to the insinuations and the critics who would allege that uh, you're in heresy if you are into easy believism. Now, again, most of the time, easy believism is a term that people who are into lordship salvation, uh, those who are in Reformed theology many times, replacement theology, uh, what they do is they say, if you say that eternal salvation is faith alone and Christ alone, and that is it, 
then you are over oversimplifying the gospel. In fact, you're not even giving the true gospel because you're leaving part of the gospel out. And that is, in some cases, they will say, you have to make Jesus Lord of your life. You have to have a commitment. You have to continue ongoing in that commitment or else you haven't given the true gospel. So you understand, that's, that's what they are calling us. Now, in, in another sense, it's kind of a offshoot of this, some people, I would say, kind of misuse the term easy believism. They would say someone that would um, invite Christ in their heart and they raise their hand or they walk an aisle or uh, these type of things, they would say that is easy believism and they really weren't saved to begin with. I'm really not going to address that in that so much because we can't get into the soul of any person when they either accept or reject the gospel. But you have heard from this pulpit that inviting Christ into your heart is not the gospel. Uh, and, and, to, and sometimes they say invite him into your life. Well, you have no life. You're spiritually dead and you are, your heart is, a, is as a tomb, so we have nothing to offer. We don't ask Christ to come into our life and co-op with us, cooperate with us to have a better life. That's not what the gospel is. But that's not what I'm going to, I, I just thought I would mention that because some people would use that term to explain that. But it's such a minority that I don't really uh, want to address it. Mainly those who would accuse you of being involved in easy believism simply think that you have to add some form of works to it or else you haven't got the gospel right and you've made it too easy. Okay? Where's my glasses? They're in my pocket. I'm going to put on the board these. Uh, <coughs> I'm only going to read the first two sentences here. Then I'm going to put the 24 font on. So don't, you won't have to squint the whole time. It's just that this, this sentence here is only on this uh, particular the free grace movement. Do you all know what the free grace movement is? The free grace movement are those churches, those people involved in what we would say uh, are they are grace-oriented. In other words, they are those who are believe in faith alone and Christ alone for salvation. And those that are grouped into that, is you could call it a movement, you could call it a association, whatever. The free grace movement is unwilling, this is uh, to concede, this is one of the accusations by those who say we are easy into easy believism. The free grace movement is unwilling to concede that the difficulty in salvation lies in, <coughs> uh, let's see, what is this? In man's... Uh, need to surrender himself totally to God as part of the act of saving faith. So to those who say that we are into easy believism, which is a perversion of the gospel, they're saying where we are negligent is not communicating to an unbeliever that they have to totally surrender themselves to God as part of saving faith. 
Okay, you can see why I wanted to to give that part up because that's what they would accuse you of. You're only given a partial gospel if you essentially give the details of the gospel which we summarize as faith alone in Christ alone. If you don't include in that total surrender to Christ, then you're leaving out an integral part of the gospel. Now I'm going to go to where we're going to start this evening. That is something that we had from last time, and I just wanted to get that in there to set up where we're going now. Now you'll like this because it's uh, 24 font. So here's another thing that those people would accuse us of, accuse us of, which is not true, which I'll you'll understand in just a moment. They say you simply believing the facts. They say that we are telling people all you need to do is believe the facts that we give you in the gospel and you're saved. So this is the way they put this. <clears throat> and this is a quote from uh, one of the journals. I don't have it right here, but it's in the notes. Finally, a corollary to this misreading of free grace view is MacArthur's constant diatribe concerning the believing of facts. Proponents of free grace gospel are presented almost as if they were a group of unfeeling history professors proclaiming mere historical facts and promising eternal life to all who would simply affirm their accuracy. And he says this is a misrepresentation, and it is, because that's not what we're saying. When we say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, when we're giving them the pertinent facts of the gospel, we're not saying believe this. It's historically true and you'll be saved. That's not what we say, is it? Now he'll, he'll go on further. Certainly the gospel consists of a set of facts and it is crucial that any presentation of the gospel relate correct facts. Let me just stop right there and turn this off. This is, a, this is another issue. You can't hardly say anything anywhere anymore without it being an issue, and people are going to challenge it. Now, I want to ask you, and I want you to tell me, you know, just it doesn't matter who it is, just what are the facts of the gospel? What must we convey to an unbeliever to give them enough information where the Holy Spirit can use that information for them to be eternally saved? What? Cindy? Okay, right. That's good. I'm glad you said that first. He has to know that he's a sinner. We have to find out where a person is in his belief system, if he has a belief system. Where is he coming from? Are you talking to a, a Muslim? Are you talking to a Hindu or a Buddhist? Certainly you wouldn't start talking to a Hindu or a Buddhist about Jesus Christ right off the bat. They don't... That's way down the list yet, okay? But this is typical for every person. They have to what? Know that they need saving, okay? That's the first thing because if they don't think they need to be saved, then no matter what you tell them, it's not going to resonate with them. And there are people who think that uh, if you said, are you saved, they would say, saved from what? And they're not being facetious. They really know. What are you talking about? Saved from what? And you, you, if you say, well, I'm, I'm talking about saved from hell. Well, 
what does that have to do with anything? I don't even believe in hell. Why, why would I think that I have to be saved from it? Where are you going to go then? This is the real world that we have to deal with. Before you start telling them the solution, you have to have them understand the problem, and the problem is that they are sinners and they're on their way to eternity in the lake of fire if they do not receive the free gift of salvation, eternal life from Jesus Christ. Now, that's what you would talk about with those people, right? I wouldn't even mention Jesus Christ until they understand, first of all, that they need a Savior. But how many times does that happen? How many times have you come in contact with people that thought they really didn't need to be saved? Not many times, right? Has, has any of you ever been there? One? One person? So it's not, that's not what we usually face, but we need to be prepared for it. And how do we find out if that person is in that category? Asking questions. You know, we're, most of the gospel is not telling, it's asking. So once they, once, let's say they've got to the point and they, uh, oh, by the way, let me, ask, let, me, let me insert this at this point. There is, um, uh, I can't think of the name of the guy right now. It might come to me. I can picture him. He's got a mustache, kind of short guy. Uh, Way of the Master. And he goes out on the street all the time <coughs> with uh, Kirk Cameron. And they ask people, uh, are they saved? And there are people, some of them say, saved from what? You know, I don't need saving. And you, they start asking a series of questions. They say, okay, um, have you ever told a lie in your life? And they say, well, yes. Well, what does that make you? A liar. Uh, have you ever stolen anything in your life? And remember what you just, you know, already we know that you're a liar. And if they're honest, they're going to say yes. Everybody here has stolen something in their life. I'm almost certain. I know I have. So they say, well, what does that make you if you steal something? Well, you're a thief. Have you ever lusted after a woman or has a woman ever lusted after a man if you're talking to a, a woman? Have you ever done that? Yes. Well, what is that? What, is, what does Christ call someone who lusts after a woman? Well, they wouldn't know, but it's adulterer or fornicator. They've already done it in their mind. And have you ever hated someone? Hasn't everybody here hated someone somewhere along the way? And if they're honest, they would say yes. And then you would say, well, what, you know, Christ, the Bible says that if you hate someone, you've already committed a murder. So by your own admission, you are a lying, uh, thieving, uh, what was the third one? fornicator, and a murderer already, by your own admission. Now, do you think that that might cause you to rethink whether you need to be saved or not? By their own admission. I'm just throwing that out there so if, someone, if you ever meet someone that says that they don't need saving and you ask them the, those questions, and there's no reason for them to lie. If they do, well, you've got to go back to number one. Have you ever lied? No, well, you just did. Um, <clears throat> so that's one way to handle it. But now let's say usually when we're talking to people, who we're talking to people who have heard of Jesus Christ. Most of the time you're, gonna be good, you're talking to people who know at least something about salvation. They've probably been, been uh, witnessed to before. So I'm asking you, what are the pertinent 
things they need to know in order to be saved. They're a sinner, okay. Okay, Christ died for their sins. Well, might be a good idea to define who Christ is. You know, the Bible says that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So when you have them understanding that they... Because, can, by the way, can you, can you be saved if you don't accept the deity of Christ? No, you cannot. That would make Jesus Christ out of a liar, liar. The Bible's a lie. And then he wouldn't be qualified to go to the cross, would he? So... doesn't matter. doesn't matter. I don't care whether somebody believes the Bible or not. The Bible is powerful whether they believe it or not. I'm going to use it. And they make the Bible the issue. If I'm witnessing to them, I'm not going to get off on that path unless I have to. Uh, this is, by the way, is going to be one of the areas in getting the gospel right that we're going to cover. We're not there yet, but we're going to cover that because... We're basing everything on what? The Word of God. And so what they're going to start questioning is the Word of God. But sometimes they'll use that as a tactic to get the heat off. See, they don't want you to continue to focus and zero in on the gospel. Let's make the issue whether the Bible is the Word of God or not, and they're trying to put me on the defensive, see. So if, if a person said, well, I don't believe the Bible anyway, well, I'll, that's fine, you know. If you don't, that's your problem, but that's okay. Because the Bible says that it's the Word of God. I believe it's the Word of God. And this is what the Word of God says. And you give it to them. And the Word of God, even under those conditions, are, it's still powerful. When it says the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than two, any two-edged sword, piercing even two, dividing asunder, the soul and the spirit, and the joints of the marrow, and is a critic of thoughts and intents of the heart, it's not a provision in there. Says, but that's only if they believe the Bible. It's that whether they believe it or not. And so when you give them the right information, you're giving them the, you, you can be quoting Scripture, paraphrasing Scripture, you're giving them the, the truth that they need for the Holy Spirit to take that truth and convict them of it. That's where the power is. It's not in your delivery. It's not whether they believe the Bible or not. The Bible will work on them whether they believe it or not. I, I would say, I don't know how many, but I would, there's no doubt a huge percentage of people who were saved not believing the Bible. But it doesn't matter. They're still saved. But if it gets into a, an, a, an issue that you can't go forward, then I'll, I'll, later on I'm going to show you how to handle that. I'm going to give you at least five evidences that any rational person would realize that the Bible is a supernatural, God-inspired, revealed revelation from God. Okay, so what do we got so far? We've got... You're going to, they have to know that they're a sinner. They have to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They have to know that he what went to the cross. But what other, uh, maybe a little tidbit we might want to throw in there? Well, yeah, but even before that. We said he's the Son of God, but was he perfect? Was he sinless? I mean, if we don't add that little tidbit, they might think, well, so what? You know, a lot, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people went on the cross. None of, no person went to the cross that was sinless other than Christ. He's the Son of God. He's sinless. He went to the cross and he died, right? Then, then what do they need to know? Right. He was buried and he rose from the, 
uh, grave. Why is that important? If he didn't rise from the grave, he was a liar. He said he's going to rise from the grave. Our, our, we don't serve a dead person like Buddha or Muhammad. We serve a risen Lord. So that's not many factors. It doesn't take long. You've heard me on Sunday summarize that a hundred times. That's the pertinent information that they need in order for the Holy Spirit to take that information and convict them. And they, have, they will either resist that or they will accept it. But you've done your job. I just want to make sure I got that in there because when we're looking at these notes, it just occurred to me we better um, make sure we all know what this is talking about. Certainly the gospel consists of a, state, a set of facts and it's crucial that any presentation of the gospel relate correct facts. And that's what we just went over. Now, if you're trying to explain that to uh, some of these people, for instance, uh, I've said before, and some of you may have had to experience this the hard way, if you're talking to Jehovah's Witnesses, don't mention heaven. Because if you mention heaven, they're going to go off on a tangent, and they're going to try to convince you that there is no heaven, that they're just going to remain on earth and all that. The easy way to get around that is just don't mention heaven. Just say, ask them if they're saved or what do you have to do to be saved. You don't have to even mention heaven. That way you won't have to get back on point. But any time that you're talking to an unbeliever, it's just like a cow. And there's a fence, I mean a gate there. Something is inbred in animals, especially cows. If you want them to go through that gate, it's not a, they're going to be so... Isn't that right, Gar? Huh? And, of course, that's, I guess with horses and donkeys and everything. Somehow they're mind readers and they know you want, to go, want them to go through there and they're not going to go through there. Then just the opposite is true, too. If you don't want them to go through there. So, but my point is we've got to keep herding them towards that gate. When they bring in this superfluous type of issues, you just say, okay, yeah, that's fine, but what about that? Boom, you're right back on the gospel again. You're asking those questions. But you don't, here's another, another point we have to face. You need to give them facts, Right? They need facts. In other words, you need to talk sometimes and not be asking questions. But what comes first? The questions. You have to ask them pertinent questions to know how you're going to approach in giving the gospel. And you don't know where. It, that's the interesting thing about talking to a person. Very few times have I ever witnessed to someone and they didn't try to get me off track. I would say something about, well, um, when you die, what's going to happen to you? You know where you're going to spend eternity? Oh, well, I go to church. What church do you go to? I said, well, church can't save anybody. I, I, what I'm asking you is do you know where you're going to spend eternity? Well, you know, my uncle said that blah, 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 and they just go on and on. And, I, and what did I do? I come right back. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, well, but what about you? Do you know where you're going to spend eternity? That's, you can use anything. In fact, that's another thing we're going to go through before we get through this getting the gospel right. It's how to get the ball rolling. Isn't that kind of the hardest thing to do? I mean, you're sitting there, you're, 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 you come in contact with somebody, and you're thinking, okay, Lord, I want to give the gospel to this person, but you don't want it to be a canned speech. You want it to come across natural. You want it to be relaxed, you know. Some people are as nervous as Barney Fife when they give the gospel. 
you believe in Christ? Okay. You know, they're just about to shatter. That's not what we want to do. We want to be relaxed. And we just want to ask them some questions. I like that question. Do you know where you're going to spend eternity? What? You know, that's just one that I might like. You might have a, uh, some more. And when we get to the part where we're getting into this more, maybe y'all have some ideas. Maybe I can use those. We'll bounce them off each other and see what we can come up with. So you have to ask the questions first before you start giving them the information. And a lot of times, rather than just telling them, you might be asking. You ask, you ask questions to find out if they realize they need saving, right? What if you ask them, well, did you know that God took care of our sin problem? And wait for an answer. I'm just trying to help you keep it moving and not be canned speech. But somewhere along the line, you have got to get that information in there for the Holy Spirit to take that and make it effective for salvation. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but there is a storm going on around, among evangelicals today as considered this very point. I have been to conferences and heard speakers speak on this very point. How much information do you have to give in order for it to be effective for salvation? That's, that's the question. And there are some that I respect highly that I don't agree with. There is one group that says all you have to do is believe that Jesus Christ can give you eternal life, and if you believe that he can, you're saved. And I don't think that's enough information. Some call it the crossless gospel. They didn't even talk about the cross. So from my standpoint, I'm telling you the things that I think are necessary to get across. They have to know that they need salvation. They have to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He was sinless. He went to the cross. He died for your sins. And he was buried. He was resurrected. And now he offers eternal life. To anybody who will accept him and him alone for it. That is enough information. Now, you don't have to give it to them all in a one string like that. You might have you, however it comes across, but that's the information you want to get into. Now, I didn't even plan on giving you any of these things that I just said, but when I saw this correct set of facts, it just, I don't know, a nerve went off or something. I thought I better cover that because that is, when you say that's important. Okay. However, concern. The concern, excuse me, where am I? Oh, okay. However, the simple historical affirmation, <coughs> I left it, okay, now I can see, whoop, hold on a minute, I touched something. Let's see if we can see this in a, um, a full screen. Okay. Let me just start over on this paragraph. Certainly the gospel consists of a set of facts, and it is crucial that any presentation of the gospel relate the correct facts. Now, he should confer with 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, which does have some of these facts, but it doesn't have them all. However, the concern of the free grace gospel is not to ask for simple historical affirmation, but to call the individual to personal trust in the significance of these facts for himself. The moment the unbeliever recognizes his own sinfulness and believes that Christ alone has provided complete forgiveness through his death, in other words, at that moment of personal trust in Christ alone for salvation, 
that person is justified and receives the gift of eternal life. So it's not just saying, do you believe in a historical fashion that Jesus Christ went to the cross and he died and he claimed that he was paying for the sins of the world? Do you believe that? Do you accept that data? That's not giving the gospel because that's not the gospel. It's giving them the facts and saying, now this is what God has revealed to us through his word. Now I'm asking you, do you accept that? In other words, do you believe that? Do you trust that? Or are you going to trust your works? Because that's the real decision, isn't it? Are you going to trust what the Bible says or are you going to trust in your works? Are you going to trust what the Bible says or what some denomination or some religion tells you? That's the issue, and your eternal destiny depends on it. Well, that's what the gospel is. It's personal, and it's a trust. It's not just believing a set of facts. It's trusting those facts for your eternal destiny. This definition of believing the facts is a far cry from MacArthur's demanding reference to intellectual acquiescence to historical data. Intellectual acquiescence. You know what that means? Well, another one is uh, mental assent is another way of putting it. And, and it's not intellectual acquiescence. It's not just a mental assent. But if someone told me, I've done this before, by the way. Someone said, yeah, but you know what you believe is just a mental assent of the mind and that's what saves you. You know what I said? What do you think I said? Yeah, what do you mean by mental ascent? I'm not going to answer. That's a loaded question. And they essentially said, well, a mental ascent is, means to accept something or believe something. I said, okay, I'm guilty of that, yeah. If that's what it means, I am guilty of that. It's a mental ascent. If it means believing, then I'm guilty of it. If you want to call it guilt, fine. He says, the former accurately reflects the free grace view of the gospel. The latter does not. So this whole thing was started with this headline, simply believing the facts. Do we have to believe facts in order to be saved? Yes. But there's one other thing. Do we have to personally accept those facts and trust in those facts for eternal salvation? Yes, and that is not just an acquiescence of the uh, mind. That's trust. Okay, I made up this, <laughs> I made up this uh, headline. This, actually, that's a pericope. A pericope. Y'all remember what pericopes are? Okay. Uh, here's a quote. Well, the name of it is Hard Believism. Well... If one adopts MacArthur's view of salvation, then gone are the days of responding to an unbeliever's questioning heart with believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, Acts 16.31. Simply quoting John 3.16 or Ephesians 2.8.9 would also not be enough. So, if they accuse us of easy believism, hmm, I think what they believe is a hard believism. I think you will too. This is, this is going on in this quote. Evangelism, lordship style, has become a detailed series of explanations of theological terms and texts 
conditions and promises. Consider what must be explained. Faith as commitment and obedience. Hmm. Repentance as a willingness to turn from and forsake all sin. Submission to Christ as master. And the relationship between taking up the cross and the work of Christ's cross. You would have to say a lot to explain that to an unbeliever, would you not? I would categorize that as hard believism. He goes on to say, The evangelist must also communicate to the new convert that he or she can be sure of eternal life as long as there is a continuance in faith or commitment and obedience. In all of this, the evangelist must be sure to communicate that salvation is not of works, but is a gift of God that man can never earn or contribute to. The practical inconsistencies are obvious. I have a... I won't, I'll, just, I'll just put it this way. A person came to my house one time and their intent was to convert me to Reform theology. Reform, you know what, y'all all know what Reform theology is, right? Calvinism. And I asked this person, I said, I'm going to give you the gospel and then you give me the gospel, okay? He said, okay. And I gave the gospel in less than two minutes probably closer to one minute. I said, I'm done. Now, it's your turn. I am not exaggerating. He talked for 30 minutes. I was timing him. And at the end of 30 minutes, I said, I can't take any more. I said, you got to shorten this up. The person you're talking to is going to die. They're going to go to hell before you get the gospel out. On and on. And you can see why. They've got to reconcile all these irreconcilable things and try to... And, and by the time you bring all these issues in to an unbeliever, he's going, you know, his head is spinning. With all of these criteria for receiving eternal life, how does the evangelist know when the gospel has really been shared? Well, that's a pretty good question, isn't it? I mean, we say faith alone and Christ alone. We give them about four or five facts that the Bible reveals to us that they have to believe, not only accept as facts, but to trust in in order to uh, be eternally saved. But if you don't have a, the short version, I might say, we all should have the short version, but a complete version. The long version, How, when you're given all these things, how do you know that the gospel has really been shared. And more importantly, how does the unbeliever know when it has been received? When you give the gospel and you're done giving the gospel, that person should know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they have believed in Christ, they've been born again, they're part of the royal family, and their ticket to heaven, you don't have to say heaven as a Jehovah Witness, but their ticket has been stamped. It's guaranteed, and they cannot lose it. They can know right then. Did you know? I knew. There was a whole lot of things I didn't know, but I knew one thing. I had something I didn't have before. I had trusted Christ for eternal salvation, and the Bible tells me if I do that, I'm born again. And I knew it. If you have to 
have commitment and you have to make Lord uh, Christ Lord of your life and you have to obey and all these other things. Can you know that when, when they give you all that? What kind of confidence can you have? You can't have it, can you? One wonders whether the woman at the well, the Philippian jailer, or the thief on the cross would have understood or had time to believe the complex and cumbersome gospel implied by lordship position. The gospel message was meant to be simply stated and easily understood. And all that came from the Journal of the Grace Evangelical Society, Volume 2, 1989, page 40. The gospel has to be simple. Uh, what I'm talking about, not a complex theological hodgepodge of different doctrines to put together to try to make a case. It just has to be simple so that anyone can understand it. Now, even, even a simple gospel cannot be understood by a spiritually dead unbeliever. But the Word of God is powerful. It's the gospel that the Holy Spirit convicts a person from. You give him those facts, though that information, and tell him this is not believing just in the facts, in a book. We're talking about a person that rose from the grave. He is a person that is either going to be your savior or he's going to be your judge, and the, and the decision that you make with regards to what I'm telling you is going to determine that fact. You're either going to reside for, with him for all eternity or you will face him at the great white throne and live in a Christless eternity. Okay, y'all ready to press on to another deal? Free and costly. For example, MacArthur claims that salvation is both free and costly to the unbeliever, page 140. A tenet that he suggests is a biblical paradox. However, a paradox correctly defined is a statement that may seem unbelievable or absurd, but may actually may be actually true in fact. Thus, in this situation, to be a true paradox, the term gift must be able to involve the concept of necessary cost to the receiver. This, however, a logical as well as a theological impossibility. In other words, something cannot be a gift and cost you something at the same time. And yet, this is a quote. This is in quotation marks uh, that John MacArthur has in his uh, book. It says, uh, salvation is both free and costly. Well, it's costly in the sense that it costs God, his, his son. It, when we say it's, it, that, God, that, that the uh, gospel and salvation doesn't cost us a thing. We can't work for it. We can't earn it. There is no cost to us attached to it. But it costs God the infinite cost of his only son. Thus, in this situation, to be true paradox, the term gift must be able to involve the concept of necessity and cost to the receiver, and that's just impossibility. Just as up cannot equal down or it is no longer up, as soon as a gift necessitates a price from the receiver, the gift is no longer a gift. 
It has become a possession purchased by the receiver. One of the things, in fact, this is one of the reasons that I even started to get on this Getting the Gospel Right series is because I wasn't so certain how, how strong you are on being able to articulate the fact that a person can believe in Jesus Christ, they can accede that the Bible is God's Word, but if they add anything to faith, they are not saved. And you cannot equivocate on that. Believing in Jesus Christ and adding anything to it will not save. And he just explained why. Because God only offers eternal life as a gift. And you cannot pay for a gift. And if you add anything to it, oh, okay, yeah, I believe in Christ, but you also have to be baptized. Is that person saved? And I know it goes against the grain. You all know people who are nice people, very uh, thoughtful and sensitive and good people. They might be a Catholic, and I'm telling you, if they subscribe to the ideology of the Catholic Church, they are not saved. I don't care if they believe in Jesus Christ or not. If they add any of the sacraments to it, they are not saved because they've added something to it, and God only gives it as a gift. You add anything to it, and you don't get it. Now, that's hard for some people. But they're so nice. When they talk about Christ, they know Scripture. Surely they're a Christian. If they didn't take it as a gift without adding anything to it, they didn't get it. Applied to the question at hand, to say that the gift of eternal life involves necessary cost to the unbeliever is not to state a paradox, but a logical absurdity. It is a statement that has no possibility of being true if language is to be retain meaning and, and ability to communicate. Truly, Christ calls the believer to a life of costly discipleship after receiving the gift of salvation. See, this is one of the things that you also need to explain to people because when you come across you say it's faith alone you add anything to it any work and you don't have it you're still lost oh but the bible talks about uh about the uh, about being good and needing works after salvation there's a guy at the at a gas station here in Brenham, and i've been giving him tracks for a month or so and he's, he, 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 got, he has one of these little Bibles, and he's reading that Bible all the time. He's in one of those little booths, you know, you go up and you pay. And I've given him these booths, I mean, these uh, Bibles, uh, the, oh, excuse me, the tracts, and, and he's, we talk about the Lord. I said, you know what? I even gave, gave him, what are you working for? You, you know what that's about? You know, the whole booklet is about you don't have to work for it. So I said, you know, I'm just going to put him to the test. And I went to pay for my gas one time. I said, say, so-and-so, I said, um, do you have to have good works in order to go to heaven? He said, absolutely. I said, what? He said, oh, yeah, the Bible talks all about good works. And I, I, there were people behind me. I didn't have time to talk. So I just wrote down real quick on a pad, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Titus 4, 5, just two. I said, Read those. See you next time. 
went to him next time. And uh, uh, this time I really didn't have time to write anything. I said, did you read those verses? Yeah. I said, do you have to be good to go to heaven? He said, yeah. I said, what is missing here? I didn't understand it. I said, do you see? And you know what it is? You know what I haven't told him yet? The good works after you're saved. God commands us to work. That we have to have works. But it's after salvation, not for salvation. Now that's a personal experience of mine. After handling a number of books, talking to him over a period of a couple of months or more, inviting him to church and all this. And I thought, for sure, he's got it. You can't take that for granted. What if you have a neighbor and you're not sure? You know, oh, well, I'm sure that they understand this. Listen, I was shocked. And I did, you know, I'm not full of finesse. I don't have to tell you that. So I didn't know any other way than to just blurt out, do you have to be good to go to heaven? Do you have to have good works? That's all the only way I knew to say it. And it did get the response. Yeah. I'm, and I just said, mercy me. How can a person get the book, booklet? What are you working for? The whole thing is about, it's not about works. And yet, you see, in his mind, I finally figured it out. In his mind, the Bible says that you have to have good works. And in his mind, he has associated that with being saved. And he's reading all these things, but it hasn't clicked yet. Guess what I'm going to tell him next time I see him? Well, first of all, guess the first thing I'm going to ask him. <laughs> For the third time, do you have to work in order to go to heaven? And if he says yes again, I don't care how many people are behind him. I'm going to say, look, the working comes after you're saved, not for salvation. You got that? We are commanded to work, but it's never to be saved. It's to serve after we are saved sons and daughters of the Most High. But that's all I have to say. And, you know, pray. <laughs> and that's essentially what this is saying. Truly, the bottom portion of it, truly Christ calls the believer to a life of costly discipleship after receiving the gift of salvation, but to imply that the price of commitment is demanded as part of receiving the gift is to portray a gospel of nonsense. It is to say that the gospel is a free gift, but it will cost you everything. And that does not make sense. If you know the English language, it's, it's saying up is down, down is up. It just doesn't, doesn't wash. Where are we? Oh, okay. I got to end. I'm done for tonight. Where's my deal? There it is. Are y'all learning anything? I hope this will embolden you to just talk to people. Just ask them, what's going on in your life? Hey, you ever thought about where you're going to spend eternity? What do you think about that? And, and just talk to them. And as you're talking to them, find out where they are. What you want to do, first of all, is bring them to that point to where they realize, and it usually doesn't take very long, they don't know squat. They don't know anything. Uh, somebody told them something or, you know, did you ever look at this for yourself? Do you know what the Bible says about this? Somehow get them to that point to where they know that they need salvation and then tell them, you know what, 
you don't know how good the good news is. When you understand how good the good news is, you're going to be thanking God for the rest of eternity for who and what He is and what He's done for you. You know, we, we need to get that out there. The time is short. And don't be afraid of messing up. Listen, you can't mess up more than I have. Talk to this guy three times. Giving him books. And he's still, oh yeah, he's still got to be. But I'm not done. I'm going to get another crack, I hope. Because it doesn't depend on me, you know. Uh, the Lord might use somebody else, but I hope, he use, I hope I see him again. I might even stop there tonight. I don't even need gas. <laughs> okay, let's close. Father, thank you for this time with a fellowship in your word to recognize how great your grace is, that everything depends upon who and what you are. The only thing we can add to the mix is simple faith, non-meritorious faith. It doesn't even depend on how much faith we have or the quality of our faith. The only thing it depends on is that we've got the right object, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're so thankful for this and pray that you will embolden us to look for our opportunities to give the gospel. Not a canned speech, but talk to people, ask them questions so that the Holy Spirit can convict them and that they might come into the fold. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.